Well, if you have been with us for the last few weeks, we've been, you know, seeing what Paul has been encountering, which has been trial after trial, after testing, after all kinds of tribulation, right? Paul has found himself in a spot where he is in chains. He's been staying in Caesarea for the last couple chapters because basically the Jews had tried to have a court hearing at the Sanhedrin. That's like the Jewish Supreme Court, right? These Jewish leaders said, we got to get Paul because here are the charges. According to Acts 21.46, I believe it is, these men from Asia, these Jews from Asia, had come into town for Pentecost. And they said, Paul, that guy, we know about him. He hates the Jewish people. He hates the Jewish law and he hates the temple and he tried to profane it by bringing in Gentiles with him. And see, that charge right there, if you brought Gentiles into the court of Israel at the temple, that was a death penalty. Rome would allow the Jews to carry out a death penalty for that instance because they knew if you understood how serious it was to break that, you won't break it and it'll keep peace in town. But see, Paul didn't break any of those things. We know from Scripture, Paul was the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Paul was a guy that revered all things that had to do with the Old Testament, with the law, the prophets. But people hated the fact that Paul took all those things in the Old Testament, all the things of the prophet, and he said, you know who this is all speaking of? It's speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who has died for the sins of many and has resurrected, proving himself to be the Lord. But also he said this, everyone must repent and turn from their sins. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. You must come to the Lord Jesus and trust in him for cleansing before the eyes of the Lord. Amen? And think about how offensive that statement is, though, to Jews that believe that, hey, we're children of Abraham. We have been grafted or granted the opportunity to walk in to paradise with the Lord because we belong to Abraham. He says, nope, all your works, all your zeal for the law, all these things that you have, apart from Jesus Christ, those things are nothing. Now, when you have Jesus and you have a completed faith in him, you will absolutely revere the Old Testament. You will walk in good works that match that repentance. But man, that was absolutely upsetting to their flesh. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but when you take the gospel out, you're going to encounter different kinds of responses. The two most common, and in my experience, is either people go, yes, amen, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I am empty, I am tired, I need the one who said I can yoke up with him, that he will bring rest to my soul. I need that. But unfortunately, the more common response is, who are you to call me a sinner? You don't know, man, I do good things. I donate blood, man, I'm so good. Like, these are the random things people talk about. I, I give my things away. I donate stuff. Oh, no, I help people in need. I do these things. Can I be clear? Those are good things. But those aren't salvation things. You need to understand that Jesus Christ died upon a cross, not for your good works, but to save you from your sin. But when we respond to that, oh, man, we're made new. We're born again, as Jesus said in John 3, 3. And so I know it's a lot of a big old giant intro, but I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you came in today to Acts 26, you would say, what is happening here? This is like watching Back to the Future 2 without seeing Back to the Future 1, okay? You're like, where'd the car come from? Why are they in the 80s? Why are they in the 50s? Why is there two Marty McFly's? This is so weird. There's not two Pauls or anything, but you know what I mean? It's one of those things where you're like, I need context. 
And so this morning, we're going to see that Paul is going to begin by giving some context. So look at Acts 26, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. And see, this is important. So there's this guy Agrippa. We say, who is this person? He's referred to as a king. He was the appointed king of the Jews that oversaw the temple. He appointed the high priest, Ishmael, at this time. He was put in place by Rome. So he's essentially, some would call him a puppet king because, yes, he's the king of the Jews. But remember, the Jews are under oppression of the Romans. Does that make sense? So to let them continue to kind of keep the, the model of their practices and keep peace, they say, you can have a king. Rome would appoint him. And this man is Herod Agrippa II. We talked about him last week. He was a pretty gnarly, sinful dude. He's actually hanging out with Bernice, his wife, who's also his sister. They have an incestuous relationship. Um, she actually left her uncle to be with her brother. Very gross, right? Very weird. And so we have this sinful relationship. They're entrenched in all kinds of carnality. But yet Festus, when he, the governor couldn't figure out what to charge Paul with in Acts 25, he says, I don't even know what to do with this, but Agrippa, you're in town, and you're a Jew. You know about Jewish things, but you've been appointed by Rome. You've been educated in Roman law. Maybe you can figure out something that I can write up because Paul has asked to go to Caesar, the absolute top dog of Roman government. He says, and I'm supposed to send him? I don't even know what we're charging him with. The Jews kept bringing false accusations with no evidence, with nothing. And so Agrippa says, you know what? I'm pretty intrigued by this. This isn't a formal legal case. This is almost a form of entertainment for King Agrippa. He says, let's go to the auditorium in Caesarea, the place that looked like Dodger Stadium last week, right? The old auditorium. He says, we're going to go and the people will come in from all over town because the king's here. And it's going to be pageantry and Paul's standing there in chains. And see, Festus has said, this guy's the one that's accused. And now Agrippa says, hey, I want to hear what you have to say for yourself. And did you pick up what Paul said right off the bat in verse 2? He says, I think myself happy. <laughs> I'm happy to be here standing before you, King Agrippa, in chains after sitting in prison for several years now. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. That's, that always means I do know about you guys because you're just like me. I don't know about you guys, <laughs> but when I'm suffering for the Lord's sake, sometimes I'm not so happy about it. <laughs> And see, it's interesting because in English, we think happy of like a happy meal, right? We think about this like whimsical, fun, little, everything's mellow and cool and I can enjoy myself. But it's interesting. In the Greek language, makarius is the word that's being used here for happy. That word is the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 where he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And see, when we start to understand that blessed... And happy, in this case of the same kind of thing, we know that we're blessed when we are mourning because we shall be comforted by the Lord. Amen? Many of us don't go, oh man, I'm so happy to be mourning this, this day. Like, no, we don't say that because it doesn't make sense in English. But we are blessed because there's a humbling that comes where we trust in the Lord. Amen? Amen? 
In this case, Paul is in chains and goes, I'm actually pretty blessed to be here before you, King Agrippa. He says, because you're an expert in all the customs, in all the law, in all the things that I'm being accused of, I get to stand here. And first of all, Paul would say, I'm blessed because I now have a guy who in his Jewish background knows things from the Old Testament. He knows about a one true God. He knows, at least has awareness of Lucifer, Satan, sin, sanctification, eternal life. And see, he says, I'm happy because I'm standing before someone now. The Romans, they didn't understand these things, right? Greeks believed in thousands of gods. He says, but now I have an opportunity to tell you. And can I tell you, this is a fulfillment of Acts 9.15, that Paul would be put by the Lord before Gentiles, the children of Israel, and kings to testify of who Jesus is. He says, even though I'm in chains, even though I'm in a tough spot that I probably wouldn't pick out for myself, I'm blessed because I have an opportunity to testify before you what all those things mean in the customs, what they all mean in the law. And everyone in this auditorium, Paul would say, they're all going to hear it as well. What a blessing to be able to speak of who the Lord Jesus is in our trials. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So what Paul's doing here is he's starting before King Agrippa, the Jewish king, and he says, here's the, here's the deal, I want to give you some context. First of all, I'm happy to be here because I'm going to share with you the things of the Lord. But let me explain to you, I haven't always been this way. <laughs> I love this. This is our testimony, right? That Jesus came in our life and everything changed, but sometimes we've got to set that groundwork a little bit. I hope we don't like, I don't know, we have a tendency sometimes to take our testimony and be like, oh, I used to be so rad, man. I used to do all these drugs and sin. I used to do this. Then I came to Jesus, right? Oh, man, everything's just a bummer now, right? Like, God forbid that be our testimony. <laughs> I hope that people walk away from testimony and go, man, James used to live a pretty cool life. He's pretty boring now, right? Hopefully it's, I was once blind, but now I see. This is better now, what's happening. But sometimes we, in our testimony, what we need to do is explain that juxtaposition, the contrast of what we were before Jesus and what we are now. And so Paul says, hey, I was a Jew of all Jews. Yes, I was born in Tarsus, but I was raised in the streets of Jerusalem. I was raised as a Jewish boy. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. See, we know that he studied under Gamaliel. I believe it's in Acts 22, verse 3, where he mentions that. But Gamaliel was one of the most revered teachers in Israel. For Paul to sit under the feet of Gamaliel, that meant something. You were revered by the other Jews. You said, man, that's like the apprenticeship that everyone wants. And then he said in, in I believe it was Philippians 3, 5, Paul reflected upon his Jewish pedigree. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and concerning the law, a Pharisee. And see, in this section, what he's saying is, these people are accusing me of being like an anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish insurrectionist that created a giant riot at the temple. Because it couldn't be further from the truth. I love everything about the Old Testament. I love the things that the temple points to. I love that the original intention, again, not what man made it, but the things that God had intended it for. He says, I don't hate these things. As a matter of fact, I kind of outschooled all those guys. 
that are trying to tell me that I'm like against them. It's funny, Paul would never boast. I believe it's in 2 Corinthians. He says, I hate boasting. I don't want to be boasting. But let me boast in this. <laughs> he says, just so you understand, I'll boast about the things that I have done for the Lord's sake, that you may understand who's writing to you. And in this case, he's saying, Agrippa, I'm a guy that they know, if they would show up and testify, they would know that I was, I was a faithful Jew and I was a mature Jew at that. So don't make me out to be this guy that knows nothing about their religion and nothing about this. He says, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most strict group. They're the ones that also believed in an afterlife. They believed in a resurrection. We're going to see Paul touches on that. This is huge. Remember when the Sanhedrin split up and couldn't make a judgment over Paul because he split them? He said, hey, look, it, I believe in a resurrection. And they all lost their minds because half the Sanhedrins were Sadducees. Half were Pharisees. You could split a room now by walking into it at your workplace and probably say, hey, you guys believe in an afterlife? Watch the responses that happen, right? But the, the Word tells us there is a resurrection, amen? Look at 6 through 8. It says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? See, this is huge because verse 8 tells us what is the question that Paul has been really having to wrestle others in. He says, why is this incredible that there's a resurrection from the dead? Again, the Jewish forefathers, the fathers of faith, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were promised things. Can I give you a general idea of what those promises were? As he says in verse 6, God spoke these promises. They were promises that this seed would come. Capital S. That from Abraham, first of all, his seed would bring forth a nation, and in that nation, there would be hope because the seed would eventually come and bring salvation for them. And that salvation would also involve an eternal throne. You can go to, to for Abraham, it's Genesis 22. For Jacob, yes, for Jacob, it's Genesis 26. And for, no, I'm sorry, for Isaac, it's Genesis 26. For Jacob, it's Genesis 49. You put those promises together and you go, there's one coming that's going to be the Messiah. He's going to deliver his people and he's going to reign with a scepter that is eternal. And so he says, do we not all agree on this? And everyone in that room would say, yes, those are the things we've been promised. He says in verse 7, he says, well, didn't all of our forefathers, they served the Lord earnestly because of those promises? Let me just tell you what happened. They walked in belief of those promises and it affected their life. But... If God didn't bring forth the Messiah in the time of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, if He didn't bring this kingdom in their time, wouldn't we say that God broke His promise? <laughs> if God says, oh, there's no resurrection, you guys served me in vain because you're never going to see the products of your faith. He says, man, why were the forefathers serving? Then God is either a liar or there's a resurrection. Their service unto the Lord because of these promises demand that there's a resurrection from the dead. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, the Lord broke His promise. All these people died. Abraham never saw the Messiah arrive. He never saw the kingdom in its glory. 
But it's interesting. Do you remember the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection when they hit Jesus in the Gospels? They came to him. And they said, hey, there's this woman, right? She married seven brothers, and they all died one after the other. We're not sure what, sure what this lady was putting in their food, but they all keep dying, right? And she says, they say, in the resurrection, who's she married to? And you remember what Jesus told them? Jesus said in Matthew 22, 31-32, He said, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus quoted Exodus 3, 6 from that burning bush scene. God said, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in your mind they may be dead on this earth, but I'm going to fulfill my promises because I am their God actively because they are still awaiting the promise that is coming in the seed. Amen? And see, Jesus said, there's a resurrection. The reason you don't believe it is because you haven't read the word, Jesus told him. When you read the word, you can't deny that there is a resurrection. There is, some would call it the afterlife. We call it eternity, amen? And can I be clear? Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41 and Matthew 25, 46, he said, on one side, you have those that have believed. They enter into eternal life. But the other side, we have those that have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They will enter eternal punishment. We say that is so heavy, that is so gnarly, that is so heartbreaking. This is why Jesus came and died for sins. If Jesus doesn't come and die, it's not good news that we're all sinners. But the fact that there's bad news, we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, according to Romans. But Jesus says, I will step in being innocent. I will trust the Father. I will step in so that in the resurrection, they can experience eternal life. Amen? That should make us very excited that there's a resurrection, assuming we trust in Jesus Christ. If you don't trust in Jesus Christ today, you don't want there to be a resurrection. I know this from experience. <laughs> anyone would talk about the gospel, anyone would talk about eternity, that would terrify me until Jesus became my advocate. <laughs> When I submitted myself to the truth that He is Lord, that He died for sins, that He rose again, and He fulfilled everything in the Old Testament in regards to who the Messiah is and who He will be. Amen? Look at verse 9 through 11. It says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they put to death, I'm sorry, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. <laughs> so he says in verse 6 through 8, right, he says, look it. The reality is, the Old Testament always spoke of a resurrection. That's why I was a Pharisee, Paul would say. I always believed there was going to be an afterlife. I always believed in an eternity. But let me tell you what I did with that belief system. He says in verse 9, he says, I went out, and I thought what I had to do, as a good Jew, I thought I was obligated to be contrary to the name of Jesus in Nazareth. He says, as a good Jew, I thought I had to fight Jesus. He's not my Messiah. My Messiah is not some guy that died on a cross. My Messiah is going to come. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to give me all of my hopes and dreams, the Jews would say, right? Kind of their own prosperity gospel of sorts. And Paul says, what I did, I went out. And because of my zeal for the Old Testament, because of my zeal for God, 
I went around and I started taking those that believe on the name of Jesus. I went out with authority from the high priest. And he says, and I would get them in chains, I would throw them in jail, and when it came time to vote, we believe that Paul was a Sanhedrin member based on this verse here. He says, I would vote that they be put to death because they believed upon Jesus. He says, I would go around, I would try to get them to blaspheme the name of the Lord. You say, why would one do this? He said in verse 11, because I was enraged against them. People don't know what to do with the gospel in their flesh. They are enraged against it. If they don't hit you physically, man, they will hate you spiritually because you're accusing them of being a sinner. Because you're accusing them of needing something they can't do in their own strength to be made right with God. But can I tell you, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Those who think they are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick... Jesus says, I am here to save and to seek the lost. We have to acknowledge that we are falling short of the glory of God. And the only sacrifice, the only way, as Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that frustrated Paul. What am I supposed to do with all of my works? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with my pedigree, with my heritage, with my degrees, and all of my things that I've worked so hard for? How dare these fishermen and tax collectors <laughs> tell me what to do? I'm going to punish these people. And he went all the way out, all over the place. He was just tormenting the church. Look what happens. He begins to talk about his conversion in verse 12. It says, While thus occupied... As I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. <laughs> this is the third time in the book of Acts we get the account of Paul's conversion. The first time was just the detail of it. Luke said, hey, this is how Paul came to the Lord in Acts 9. Paul also recited it to the Jews in Acts 22. And in this case, we get it again, but it's awesome because we get these new details. Not that Paul's making up new stuff. He's just remembering new things. And in this section, he says, man, I was on the road. We were headed to Damascus. Acts 9.1 said that he was still breathing threats and murder against the church. The very life in him, the breath in him, was all about destroying the church of Jesus Christ. It says in Acts 8.3 that he was wreaking havoc on the church. He goes, he has this entourage with him with the authority from the high priest. He goes to get everyone he can, and while he's midday on his journey, think about that, noon, the brightest time of the day, this light hits him in the middle of this road. It engulfs him and his buddies. I love it because in verse 14, right, all they can do is they're just laying on the ground. They all had fallen to the ground. And in this moment, this voice out of the light, this voice comes. It tells us in Acts 9 that his friends heard it, but they didn't understand it. In this case, Paul hears it very clearly. This is his moment where he's being confronted by Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus, right? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. 
Verse 14 is so heavy and loaded with so much stuff here. I'm going to hit it briefly because we've already hit it two other times in Acts. Okay, you can go back and listen to Acts 9 or Acts 22 if you want it in depth. But I think about this. First of all, we have this moment where it says, he spoke to him in the Hebrew language. Paul is thinking that he's serving the God of Israel as he's going and persecuting the church. And the voice of the Lord speaks the Hebrew language. <laughs> this isn't some Gentile God talking to him. This is a Jewish Lord talking to him. That's the first thing. Secondly here is as he's laying on the ground and he's having this voice speak to him, notice it knew Paul's name. The voice of the Lord knew Paul by name and called him twice, Saul, Saul. If that doesn't get your attention, right, when light hits around you and this voice speaks your language, your name, and then here's the heavy part. He says, here's the problem. First of all, you've been persecuting me personally. You thought you were fighting a church. You've been fighting with me. That would be a scary thought. <laughs> and then lastly, he says, it is hard to kick against the goads. I love it. He doesn't ask, is it hard to kick against the goads? Goads were the sharp spikes that the farmers would use to kind of guide the animals that would pull the tills, right? They would till the land. If it got off track, they'd hit it with the goad right in the back of the ankle there, and it would get them back on track. It was a spike. In this case... He says, you're kicking against the very goads that I'm putting into your heart that tells you this is truth every time you try to deny it. And I know it is hard. <laughs> you can pretend it's not. I know that you're out here chasing down believers all over the place because you're unfulfilled by all of your empty religion. You need to stop this right now. You're kicking against the, 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 the goads here. And I was thinking about this. I said, is this a weird phrase to us? We don't really use that phrase anymore doing some research on this. This was something that the Jews and the Romans were familiar with in these times, and it usually was used in regards to you're making God mad. You're fighting deity. It didn't mean necessarily the God of Israel. Any God that you believed in, if you were doing opposite of what he wanted, you were kicking against the goats. Here is the voice of the Lord speaking in Hebrew, calling Paul by name, saying, you're kicking against my plan for your life. You're doing the very opposite of what I would ever call you to do. We're going to see this. Look at what happened here, right, in verse 15. He says, who are you, Lord? How crazy is this? The guy that's supposed to be the Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews, all of his studies, all of his time in church, all of his sacrifices, all of his zeal, all of his religion, he didn't know who the Lord was. I hope that startles us a little bit in our seats today. <laughs> We're all here because we say we know the Lord. That's why we come here on Sunday morning. Or we got dragged here by our significant other. But usually it's because we want to know the fact that, man, I want to hear from the Lord today. And many of us would say, I know the Lord. And I pray that's the truth this morning. If we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we have been born again, then yes, we know the Lord. But can I tell you, there are all kinds of people in church this morning that can check the box on their attendance, on their service, all good things. But apart from Jesus Christ, you won't even know who the Lord is. And he says, let me tell you who I am. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. <laughs> oh, man. The moment that Paul realized he was wrong about everything he thought about God. He thought he knew everything. If you would have talked to Paul 10 minutes before this experience, he is the scholar of all scholars and knows everything that has to do with the God of Israel. Now, the Lord just shown up and said, you don't even know who I am, do you? I'm the one you've been persecuting. And I think about this so many times. We go, man, 
That must have been absolutely terrifying. It was, right? He's laying on the ground. He's blinded by this experience we find out in Acts 9, right? He's laying there. Look what happens in 16 through 18. It says, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. <laughs> what an awesome three verses right there. If you want to know what the commission of the believer is and what the content of our message is, look at verse 16 through 18. <laughs> This is the gospel. This is why we take it to people. That God will open the eyes of the blind. Jesus came and did it physically, fulfilling Isaiah 50, uh, 35, 5-6. He healed the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, the tongues of the dumb. He went out and He healed people physically. But we know as believers, He's doing the same spiritually. Amen? We once were blind to the plans of the Lord. We were blind to who Jesus was and he came to the power of his gospel. He has opened our eyes and he tells Paul, hey, here's what I'm going to do for you. Talk about the loving kindness of the Lord. The Lord Jesus says, hey, Paul, you're the guy that's been persecuting me, right? I'm going to cut your head off. That's what we think he would say, right? <laughs> if it's us dealing. He says, hey, stand up. Get ready to go. I have work for you to do. <laughs> Does that, that blow your mind? I'm not about to recruit some guy that was just fighting against me to work for me. <laughs> that seems like a bad plan, right? We were talking about pre-service. Planning, our planning doesn't match the planning of the Lord often. <laughs> His ways are higher than our ways, according to Isaiah 55, 8. Amen? And here he is. He says, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to give you a plan to go stop kicking against the goads and start doing the things I've made you to do. I'm going to send you. I'm going to deliver you from the Jews. I'm going to deliver you from the Gentiles. But I'm going to send you ultimately to be a minister to the Gentiles. Romans 15, 16. That's what Paul said he was, the minister of the Gentiles. Now, we saw that Paul preached to all kinds of people anywhere he went, whether Jew or Gentile. He knew that the gospel was for all people. But think about this. Paul is a guy that's the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's always believed that Gentiles were in existence to stoke the flames of hell, right? Now the Lord says, hey, I'm going to send you out to be my minister to open their eyes. That they may see the light. That they may be given from the power of Satan to God. That they may be forgiven of their sins. And not only that, but they would receive an inheritance as they are being sanctified by me, Jesus says. This goes back to that promise of resurrection, amen? They will receive this. They're going to receive an inheritance. An inheritance is something that's coming, right? We haven't gotten it yet. He says, you're going to know that you're going to receive it because you're going to experience something on this earth. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're born again. And you have this experience filling of the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, as a guarantee that that inheritance is coming. And he says, this is what I'm going to have you do, Paul. Go out and tell everyone about this. And man, if we aren't doing this, <laughs> I'll tell you, the Lord's going to have his way no matter what, amen? But aren't we so blessed to participate in his commission? <laughs>
What a blessing that we simply have to go tell people. Man, let me tell you, in Paul's case, let me tell you my testimony. But I can't just tell you about my life. I want to tell you about the one who did this. The fact that God has delivered me from the grips of Satan. That God opened the eyes of my wicked heart and He now has sanctified me. And that sanctification is to be set apart, being different than the world, being cleansed and made like Jesus because of the power of the Spirit. Amen? Look at what happens here in 19 through 23. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. <laughs> so Paul says, I had this experience with the Lord. He called me. He told me to get up. I love that. The first thing Jesus said, get up out of your sin, dude. Stop kicking against the goats. <laughs> get ready to go where I'm sending you. And when you go, here's what to do. He goes and does it. This is the hardest part for the believer. We all go, I remember when I came to the Lord. It was on the field at Harvest Crusade. It was at church on a Sunday morning. It was at my friend's house. Well, what are you doing now about that? Did you walk out that commission the Lord has called you to do? I think many of us have to look back sometimes and go, man, remember those things we used to do? I pray that today we would renew the fact that while there's breath in our lungs, we have a commission, amen? To go, and at the very least, can I tell you, we should have works coming out of our life because of the repentance, the, the faith that we have put in Jesus Christ. He says, here are the things you need to do. He went and told everyone this all over the place. He said, you need to turn to God and repent. To repent is to turn away, right? To turn the other direction. He says, turn from those things and turn to God. I feel like the one thing the Lord kept pounding into my heart this week as I studied <laughs> on this verse in particular was that many people want to say they've repented, but they haven't turned from the things of this world to turn to God. Now, that may be none of the people in this room this morning. Maybe it's for someone online, right? We're all good. <laughs> but the reality is, and I see you guys online. I'm, I'm with you. But <laughs> the reality is, man, you can't say that you've repented if you haven't turned from the things of this world. There's something about turning to God. Can I be clear? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about temptation. Although 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that God will make a way out of every temptation. Amen? What we have a tendency to do in American Christianity is to say, one time I said a prayer and that made me right. But your life does not change in any way. You haven't been made a new creation. You haven't walked out the truth. You haven't expressed your inward faith with general obedience. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about the rule of your life and not the exception is that you serve the Lord. The exception is that you yield to your flesh. In the world, the rule was we always yield to do our flesh. Amen? When we come to Jesus, He says, stop doing the things of the world, trust in the Lord, then start doing the things that the Lord's called you to do. 
Did Paul not live this out perfectly? <laughs> he was living for himself. It didn't look like the kind of sin we're used to, but it was zealous sin. It was that zeal of religion and pride. He turned around and stopped doing those things and started doing the things he was supposed to do in the Lord. My encouragement here is not a condemnation to you this morning. My encouragement is that obedience is the joy of the believer. When you start walking in the things of the Lord, do you know he wrote those to bless us? To glorify him, but we're blessed as we obey his word, amen? Man, whatever you're in this morning, young men, old men, women, whatever, man, cast those things of the world away. Trust in him and do those works he's called you to do, amen? Look at 22 again, 22 and 23. He says, again, the reason that they tried to seize him and to kill him was because he said that everyone needed to repent. And he says, the Jews have been so mad about this, they've tried to kill me, but you know who helped me in all this? God, he said in verse 22. He says, I've obtained help from God so that I can testify both before small and great, like the king Agrippa. He says, and I'm testifying of those things which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, that he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Can I just quickly tell you that in Scripture, we know in Isaiah 53, it said that the Messiah would suffer. He would bear the sins of many. He would die. Like a, a, a lamb being led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. We know that Psalm 22 talks about that. But it says in Psalm 16 that God would not leave him in Sheol. He wouldn't leave his soul dead. He wouldn't leave him there. He was going to raise him up. Scripture demanded that there'd be a resurrection of the Messiah if he's going to be killed because he's the Messiah. He's going to rule and reign forever. It just deductive reasoning would say, yes, he has to rise again, but Scripture supports that. But more than that, I think about Isaiah 49.6. It says, I will also give you as a light, speaking of the Messiah, to the Gentiles. I will give you as a light, as my salvation to all the ends of the earth, he said in Isaiah 45.22. Scripture always said that the Gentiles would be included as they put their faith in the God of Israel. The problem was that the Jewish leaders thought that meant you had to be converted to Judaism. What God was saying was, your religion will not save you. You need to put your trust in the Lord God. You can serve Him with your sacrifices. You can serve Him with your worship. You can go to temple and pray as we saw Paul and Peter and everyone else do. But they no longer participated in the animal sacrifices that would cover sins. Because Hebrews 10.10 10 tells us that Jesus, once and for all, He has taken on all the sins, bared the sins of many, once and for all. Amen? That sacrifice has been given. History said that it would happen. Scripture said it would happen. Look what happens here. We're almost done here. Look at 24. It says, Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad or crazy. But he said, I'm not mad or crazy. Most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely, he knows that these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was done not in a corner. Festus, the governor, the Roman governor, right? Remember, he has Roman intellect. He probably believes in many different gods, he probably is, he, we know he's not sure of what to make about this whole Christianity thing. They had the trial last, you know, a chapter ago, and he's like, I don't know what to do with any of this. This sounds like a religious thing. I don't get this. 
In this case, he hears Paul and Paul saying, hey, I used to absolutely hate the name of Jesus. I used to be just like the guys that are persecuting me. But then I gave my life to Jesus. I started serving him and I've studied. The more I study, the more I realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. Festus is like, dude, you've studied so much, you've melted your brain, Paul. That's basically what he tells him. <laughs> if you go to the Greek, it's funny, he doesn't say melted brain, but he says your brain's in a frenzy, basically. You've studied so much that it's starting to leak out of your ears, dude, you're crazy. You know what's funny about this? As I think about in John 10, 20, remember they said that Jesus was the same word, the same mad or crazy. They even said he had a demon. <laughs> if people ever tell you, people in the world tell you you're crazy for believing in the gospel, you're in good company. <laughs> Jesus and Paul and all the church and all the prophets. Think about all the prophets in the Old Testament that were rejected by king after king. I've been studying through the kings lately and just looking at their examples. And every time the word of the Lord comes, they just reject it. They reject the mouth of the prophets. And you today, you're out there telling people, hey, it just makes sense. Everything points to this. And they'll say, you're crazy. One God? And everyone has to submit to him? There's a real hell? Yes, but there's a real Savior. His name is Jesus. And He can be your Lord right now as you put your trust in Him. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, your age, your background, your degrees. You can put your trust in Jesus today. He's the God of all the ends of the earth. And so He tells him, I love it. He doesn't like, be, He's not disrespectful towards Festus here. He just says, Hey, most noble Festus. <laughs> Like, you're a noble dude, I'm just telling you. I'm not lying. These are real things that King Agrippa can tell you. These things happened in his region. His dad, his grandfather, they know about Christianity. <laughs> They've been fighting it their whole lives. There was a man named Jesus, and he definitely died. Right, Agrippa? Agrippa would say, yeah, no, that's true. This guy, Jesus, was crucified. He says, and then aren't there hundreds of people, Agrippa, as he says in Corinthians, this said that Jesus rose again. He's like, well, yeah, there's rumor that he rose again. He's like, well, that sounds like the fulfillment of that scripture. He says, and then, is there not this church that's made up of all kinds of odd people that have put their trust in the name of Jesus and great signs are being done? And Agrippa would have to say, well, yeah, that's all coming true. He says, I'm not the crazy one here. <laughs> Look at Festus. You don't get this, but it's happening. And so he turns to Agrippa. Look at this. This is the coolest section here. Look at 27 through 29. He turns, he basically flips the script. He's the one that's been questioned about what he's done. But now if Paul's going to ask King Agrippa a question. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. <laughs> In this moment, Paul takes this whole experience. He's been told, hey, tell us who you are. Well, you've been accused of being a, 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 you know, insurrectionist. You've been accused of being this. You've been accused of being that. And he just flips the script here. He says, hey, I have a question for you. You're the king of the Jews. You've studied these things. Tell me, do you believe in the prophets? And of course this guy has to say he believes in the prophets. He's supposedly a practicing Jew. He lives terribly, but he professed to be a Jew. And Paul says, I know that you do. I love that. Paul's like, I'm going to sell you on this, man. If you admit that you believe in the prophets, what are you going to do with all these events that occurred with Jesus? What are you going to do about the fact that a chained prisoner is standing here telling you that I'm happy and blessed to be here? 
That defies logic. Why is Paul the blessed one in this scene? He's the only one in chains. Everyone else in the stands has their freedom. Everyone that's questioning him have jewelry and money and fame. And he says, oh, I'm so blessed to be here because you guys need to get your eyes open. <laughs> you need to repent. You need to realize there's an inheritance in eternity for you. If you trust in this word that was spoken by the prophets, do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? And Agrippa, <laughs> he says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Can I tell you how tragic that statement is? <laughs> I have family members. I don't want to say who. Maybe they'll listen to this study. But <laughs> I have family members that sometimes get like this get-out-of-jail-free card. They're like, hey, it's okay, though. They've heard the gospel their whole life. It's okay. They used to go to church a lot. I, they know better. They know deep down. They know. They know. We don't have to worry. Like, they're, they're good. And you just see and they're like, they're miserable. They're doing everything contrary. They're kicking against the goads. But they would tell you, oh, dude, I grew up at that church. Oh, my friend, my family member is a pastor. They like hang on to these other things. They say, yeah, I get it. I respect it. Now, would they say they're born again? They can't because they haven't experienced what it is to be born again because they have not fully been persuaded to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you this morning to be almost persuaded is still to be unpersuaded. That's a scary statement, amen? But you know the difference when you've been persuaded. <laughs> the filling of the Holy Spirit, the new life, the presence of the gifts, you're like, this is real. I know this because I went to a Christian university, a Christian high school. I grew up in a Christian church at a Calvary chapel that taught the word soundly. But it would go in one ear and out the other. I would profess that, oh yeah, I know about the gospel. I had no idea. I was almost persuaded. But based upon my life, uh, based, based upon my reaction when I would hear the true gospel, it proved I was not actually persuaded because I was fearful of that being true. For Agrippa here, he says, you almost persuade me. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, said, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to like, be like you, to follow you? He says, hey, go sell all the things you got, you rich young ruler. For him, that was the prescription because he trusted in his things, right? He says, you go sell all the things and you follow me. And you know what the rich young ruler did? <laughs> he left sorrowfully because he had a lot of things. Agrippa's sitting here going, man, this is getting awkward, Paul. You've switched it. The whole arena is listening to me now. I had to stand and defend like I'm still a Jew. I'm the king of the Jews. Yeah, I believe in the prophets. If I say that, then I'm going to contradict myself by not believing in Jesus. He says, you almost persuade me. What else can I say? <laughs> And this is so sad. <laughs> because what Agrippa was saying was, I have this relationship with my sister-wife lady that I shouldn't be having. I have power that I'm afraid I'm going to lose. If I go tell Caesar and everyone I become a Christian, I'm probably not going to be the king of this region anymore. Fear starts to set in. If I sit, give myself to Jesus, I'm done. Can I tell you? Yes, that's exactly the point of trusting in Jesus. Luke 9.23, Jesus said, Anyone that wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. But Jesus also said in Matthew 11.28, He said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I just love that idea that Jesus says, Yes, I'm the way, the truth, and life, but you will be so blessed. 
not just eternally, but here on this earth, as you walk in my ways, I will yoke up with you, the God of the universe, the God that created, according to Colossians 1, all things. He says, I want to yoke up with you. And we're like, I don't know, there's just too much for me to lose in this relationship. <laughs> That's insanity. That's blindness. The gospel removes that blindness, brings you to light out of the grips of Satan and into an inheritance. Amen? Look at the, what happens here again in verse 20 and 29. Look at what Paul's response is. He says, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. What that means is Paul says, I am praying and wishing that Agrippa, not only you would trust in this word, this whole arena, this whole room full of people, the people that have shown up to see me, the chained prisoner, the accused, the falsely accused, I pray that they would receive the same inheritance that I get in the Lord. Is that not like the most radical heart for the lost? <laughs> if you had a room full of people that hated you, made up false things about you, put you in chains, would you be like, man, I just hope they get eternal glory with me? I hope that would be our heart. Can I tell you, our flesh is like, dude, I hope I'm keeping this a secret. These guys can burn. That's like our, our flesh, right? In Paul's case, he's like, no, I want everyone here to hear this and turn and repent. Can I tell you, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Remember what Jesus said upon the cross as he was, being, as he was suffering and being killed for false accusations and charges? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. People that rejected him, his own brother James came to faith in him later. The Lord received him and said, good, I'm ready to receive you. You may say, man, I've done so many gnarly things. God doesn't want to yoke up with me. That's a lie from the enemy. The Lord created you to yoke up with him. And right now you're kicking against the goads if you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ. Those sharp spikes in your heart as you hear this, every time you hear the gospel, that is the Holy Spirit telling you it's time to yoke up. Don't be afraid of leaving behind the garbage of this world. You think they're riches, they're garbage. It's all going to burn. <laughs> Yoke up with the Lord who promises you an eternal inheritance. Look at how this ends, 30 through 32. It says, When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, who's his wife, and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa, the king, said to Festus, the governor, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so in this section here, what we see is they basically conclude the thing. I think it's interesting. It just says that the king stood up after this exchange. He's probably like, I'm getting out of here, dude. This is getting highly convicting and like uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm out of here. Good, good talking with you, Paul. I'm glad this isn't a formal thing. I have to make any decision. I'm gone. You've seen this, right? When people get up and they just want to leave. And they get up and they start moving. But they do have this conversation that Luke notes here. You have a king, his wife, you have the Roman governor. You have them together and they say, hey, let's be real about this. We don't really have anything to accuse this guy of. But he appealed to Caesar. Legally, we have to send him to Caesar. We have to give him his right as a Roman citizen. He had that dual citizenship. He was a Jew. He was also a Roman citizen. He says, we have to honor that. He says, we have to send him. Did you see what Agrippa said, though? If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he probably would have been set free. I kind of disagree with the statement. Because let me tell you something that God promised. We talked about at the beginning. You will testify of me before Gentiles, the children of Israel, and kings. 
Paul is getting before kings because the Lord has anointed this whole process. He has ordained this whole process. Paul knew when to use his citizenship, when not to use his citizenship. In discernment, and every time he was encouraged by the Lord Jesus, you're doing right. As you've testified me in Jerusalem, you will testify of me in Rome. Every time he does these things, we see these new opportunities come to where he is blessed to preach the gospel. But can I tell you, just in closing, the world, the fleshly world will tell you that your commitment to Jesus is a dumb idea. <laughs> They'll say, you know, if you didn't belong to Jesus and go and waste your Sundays, you could be out doing cool things instead. <laughs> like, oh man, I didn't think about that. I, I'm so dumb for trusting and obeying Jesus' voice over my life, right? No, of course we don't say that. But the world thinks we're nuts for this. Why would you go and put chains on? It's such a shame he's left in chains. Paul would say, I'm blessed to be here. Do I want these chains? He said, no, I, I'm not trying to get put in chains. <laughs> I wish you guys would become like me, but apart from the chains, he said, right? But nonetheless, the chains are a blessing because they're ordained by God. You might be in a season where you said, I've done nothing wrong, and everyone around me tells me I've done nothing wrong. I'm a good person. I love the Lord. I've been trying to walk in integrity, and yet I'm hit with this season of trial, this season of tribulation. The world would tell you, Oh man, I don't know. Are you sure? Is it a good idea to keep obeying God? You could have been set free. They don't know about true freedom. Those people were all enslaved to sin. They were enslaved to the things of the world. And though Paul had the chains on, he was the most freed person in that place because of what Jesus had done for him. Amen? Can I just encourage you this morning if the world's telling you, man, it's not that important to follow Jesus. You guys are fanatical. You guys are wasting your Sunday mornings. Just wait till football season starts. We'll see who's fanatical, right? <laughs> Just wait. I'm a diehard Dodger fan, right? I love the Dodgers. That's okay. But to be fanatical more about those things than the Lord, right? That's the thing where we have to draw the line, right? Those things are all going away. Jesus is the eternal one. And if I deny him before a man, he denies me before the Father. But man, is I trust in him? It says in John 1.12, as many as believe on him, on him, they'll become children of God to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Romans tells us what we have to believe. We have to believe, first of all, that we are sinners. We have to acknowledge our sin and yoke up with Jesus. Say, I need you, Jesus. I need your completed work upon that cross. I believe in your resurrection that proved that you are who you say you are. Romans 1.4 tells us that by his resurrection, he proved that he is God the Son. Amen? When he resurrected, it proved that he was not a liar. When he said things like, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's truth then. The reason he resurrected is because he was not a sinner who deserved death. Everything that came out of his mouth was truth. Everything he lived out was light. And he says, you trust in me, I will become your advocate. My sacrifice becomes your sacrifice for sin and you will be made new, born again. But you've got to confess in your mouth and when you believe in your heart, you're going to walk a certain way, amen? You're going to turn from the things of the world, you're going to trust in God, and you're going to do good works befitting repentance. You're not saved by those works, but it's going to look different when you trust in Jesus, amen? Let's pray.